If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the first BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine. And before we go on to the interview with Professor Ian Kershaw, where he talks about the big decisions of the Second World War, let me tell you a little bit about the June issue of the magazine, which goes on sale in all good news agents on Tuesday the 29th of May. Aside from Ian Kershaw's fascinating feature on Hitler's seemingly unfathomable move to declare war on America in 1941, we have something to cater for every historical taste. From the real story of what went on in Roman amphitheatres, to a consideration of the development of the British sense of humour over the last three centuries, and on to an exploration of the importance of the year 1745 in the history of the nation. Plus, we look back at Elgar's life on the 150th anniversary of the great composer's birth, we talk to Peter Snow about the Battle of Midway, and we find out how one amateur historian has got to the bottom of a family myth involving Napoleon's coffin. That's only the half of it, though. We also have a special section on visiting Britain's prehistoric past, and our regular roundup of the month's best historical events and exhibitions, along with reviews of the most important history books on the shelves this month. Now, sit back and listen to one of the leading experts on the life and times of Adolf Hitler, as he gives us an insight into the mind of the Fuhrer. Do feel free to give us your thoughts on the interview, and on whether you'd like to hear more of these podcasts in the future, by posting on our forum at www.bbchistoryforum.com. Thanks for listening. Firstly, Ian, could you please briefly explain your rationale for writing a book about these key decisions of the Second World War? What are we going to learn that's new here? I suppose the rationale for undertaking this book was a personal one, that I wanted to find out some answers, and that's really why I've written all my books, that I just wanted to explain something for myself. And in all the books I've written about the Second World War, I couldn't actually find answers of the sort that I was looking for, precisely to how the key decisions were reached, what the decision-making process was whereby the vital decisions in this period of the Second World War were arrived at, and what influences were brought to bear on the people who were taking the decisions. I also tried to look at the war in this phase between May 1940 and December 41. I wanted to look at it, as it were, not just in retrospect in the way that we see this as a type of inexorable process to the victory of the Allies, but rather to see it from behind the desk of the people taking part at the time and to see what problems they faced, what alternatives they were considering when they took the key decisions. And my argument in the book is that these decisions fed onto each other, they have a consecutive impact. And I couldn't find anything else which gave me the answers to 
these questions. So although, of course, much of the detail is known in one way or the other, I think the book as a whole, in terms of looking at six belligerent powers and comparing different systems and comparing the decision-making process within these different systems, is offers something novel. Great. So the decisions you've chosen all spring from the period from May 1940 to the end of 1941. And you mentioned in the forefront of your book, the strong case could be made for the key decision being that to drop the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Could you expand a little on why you think the period from May 1940 to 1941 is the key one for the course of the war and its aftermath? Yes, of course, we can all point to different phases of the war which were vitally important. And the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is evidently a very important one. But... By that stage, the war was largely over. If those bombs hadn't been dropped on those two Japanese cities, Japan would nonetheless have been defeated within the imminent future, possibly a greater bloodshed, who knows, but it would have been defeated. By that time, Germany already had been defeated. So in terms of looking at the key shaping of the Second World War, it didn't come with the dropping of those nuclear weapons at the end of the war. In fact, you could say that the commissioning of those weapons was crucial. And the commissioning of the weapons falls within the period that I've outlined here between May 1940 and December 1941. And the reason that I selected those dates was that it seems to me that between the German invasion of the Low Countries and France in May 1940 and the German declaration of war on the USA in 1941. The war, as it turned out in the succeeding three and a half years or so, was actually shaped. That is to say, lots of things happened. It was by no means a foregone conclusion, but the contours of that war were shaped, and they're shaped by a number of key decisions which I try to explore. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've got those 10 key decisions in the book. And in your feature for the magazine, you concentrate on Hitler's decision to declare war on America. But for me, perhaps one of the more surprising episodes in the book is the first chapter on Britain's decision to stay in the fight against Germany in 1940. I get the impression that we're a lot closer to surrender then than Churchillian rhetoric suggests. So how near to a negotiated peace was Britain at that time, do you think? I think there was a very reasonable chance that under different leadership, Britain could have entered into a negotiated peace. That was, after all, what Chamberlain and other people in the British government had been expecting from the outbreak of war in September 1939. They, looking at it again, trying to look at this, to say, as they did and not as we do in retrospect, they had no idea, of course, about the way in which the war would develop. And they foresaw in those early phases that there would be some negotiated end to the war. So when we come to May 1940, the British troops stranded on the beaches at Dunkirk and more or less written off by Churchill too, the chances of a negotiated settlement or an attempt to negotiate a settlement were not altogether small. And here we have in that war cabinet, in that decision, which was arrived at only after discussions lasting three days in the war cabinet, between five and then occasionally six people, we have actually the prospect put forward by Lord Halifax of entering into uh, negotiations via Mussolini. And Chamberlain wavered on this and eventually came down on the side of Churchill. The other two people in the war cabinet beyond Halifax and Chamberlain, the two heavyweights, Churchill was new to the, of course he'd been in the wilderness and was now going to be prime minister for a fortnight, so didn't have the weight that we attribute to him later. The only other people were Attlee, the leader of the Labour Party, and his deputy Greenwood, neither of whom had any real political weight. So a lot depended upon that trio of the new prime minister Churchill, Halifax, and Chamberlain. And it was 
those three who really made the running in this decision, and it was seriously up for grabs for a while as to whether we would enter into negotiations with Mussolini and then eventually bringing Hitler into place. So I think at that time, in the end of May 1940, there was a serious chance that we could have brought about a negotiated end to the war. And it's owing to the fact that Churchill and not Chamberlain or Halifax was the Prime Minister, I think, that we didn't do that. But the decision when it was taken wasn't simply a matter of Churchill's personality and Churchill's rhetoric of the sort that we got used to later on, but it was a result of reasoned argument debated by this war cabinet, as I said, for three days. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. And with hindsight, obviously, that's a very critical and important decision. But if I was to ask you to choose a best and worst decision of the Second World War, where would you go from there? Well, I think actually, not just from a British perspective, I would select that one, that decision right at the very beginning, against the odds, when it looked like Britain would be defeated if she didn't enter into negotiations and would be faced with possible invasion. The decision then to stay in the war, I think, was the best decision. And as I said, not just from a British point of view, but because that kept America in play seriously. And it meant that the German plan was, which was basically to get Britain on side and then attack the Soviet Union, thereby clearing the Western Front altogether to attack the Eastern Front. The, Eastern Front. the German plan was then scuppered. So I think that decision was actually, in many ways, strategically the best one, although at the time, the decision when it was taken was only one taken on the hope and a prayer that America would at some stage join in the war and help out Britain. But I think that turned out to be the best decision. And the worst? The worst, I think, I'd have to go for uh, Hitler's decision to attack the Soviet Union. That was a decision which was, although ideologically Hitler had wanted that from the 1920s, when the decision was taken, it was taken for military strategic reasons in the hope that a quick defeat of the Soviet Union, not just Hitler and the Nazis thought that would be possible within three or four months, but 
actually the American uh, American intelligence and the war leadership and the British intelligence and the war leadership all thought that the Germans would wipe the floor with the Russians, so it would be over very quickly. So that decision from Hitler's point of view was a decision which was forced upon him strategically to try to defeat the Soviet Union, thereby force Britain to the conference table and keep America to its own hemisphere. And that decision, of course, turned out to be absolutely catastrophic, despite Stalin's enormous blunder in not preparing properly for the German invasion, which everybody advised him was forthcoming, that that decision then led to the prolongation of the war on the Eastern Front, to colossal losses, of course, brought in to train the, the Holocaust, and also was one which meant that the war could not be ended and had to drag on. And once Hitler was in that situation, then he was facing the, the, the problems which he'd foreseen all the time, America's entry, Germany's eventual defeat because of her material resources would not be capable of sustaining the war against the combined efforts of the Western Allies and the Soviet Union. And of course, in so doing then, that decision to invade the Soviet Union had long-term effects in that it resulted in the Soviet Union then taking over the eastern part of Europe for the next 40-odd uh, years with the consequences which we're well aware of there too. So I would point out that decision as the most disastrous decision, the worst decision in the Second World War. And of course, Hitler's decisions were pivotal in the war, though I think you pointed out that Hitler was not Germany at one point in your writings, but you are one of the leading experts on Hitler. So in the course of your researches, have you, have you reached any, any thoughts on Hitler's mindset and how he reached these decisions? Can you describe to us his decision-making process at work? Hitler's war planning, if you can call it that, was always predicated on the fact that Germany had to fight another war basically to undo the outcome of the First World War. So the trauma that he suffered at the end of the First World War is really the clue to his running of the Second World War. And of course, part of that trauma was holding the Jews responsible for Germany's loss in the First World War, something that was fairly common on the German right at the time. So holding the Jews responsible for the loss of the First World War meant that in the Second World War, the Jews had to be destroyed. And Hitler said in a notorious so-called prophecy on the 30th of January 1939, in the event of another war, the result will not be the destruction of Germany, but the annihilation of Jewry. And he held to that so-called prophecy and mentioned it on umpteen occasions in the course of the war. It's a, an indication of Hitler's mentality that lasted throughout the war. So in the first phase of the war, he was making easy victories at very little cost for Germany. But as soon as the war in the East um, uh, took place, uh, what is said, it was the worst decision, or arguably the worst decision of the war. As soon as that invasion took place, after the initial phase where German successes were extraordinary again, the difficulties began to set in, and by the end of August, beginning of September, it was plain the war would not be ended in the way the Germans had thought it would. By the time we get to the winter of 1941, Hitler's mentality, I think, is now changing in the sense that this is a war which will be fought to the bitter end. There can be no surrender, and as part of that fight to the bitter end, there will never, ever be a capitulation as there was in 1918, and Germany's enemies, primarily amongst them, the Jews, will be destroyed. And that's what he held to then, through thick and thin, as the war progressed. And Hitler had the personal capacity to turn any sort of bad news or disaster or catastrophe around to his own advantage or to Germany's advantage, thinking that some good would come from it. He stuck to that right down to 
April 1945, he had the capacity, of course, to persuade people, whatever his innermost thoughts were, persuade people around him that the war was going well and that Germany would win. But in the end, in the last phase of the war, in 1944, from, say, the June, July 1944, D-Day landing in the west, Russian advance in the east. From then onwards, the Germany was faced with the enemies encroaching on both sides of the Reich, and from Hitler's point of view, was faced internally with uh, those in his leadership saying, we need to make peace, we need to find a way out of this, can we do a separate peace with the Western Allies, even on one or two occasions, people advised him to try to seek a peace with Stalin. Hitler rejected the whole lot because ultimately for him, going down as he saw it in glory for his place in history was far superior than undertaking any form of compromise which would result in his eyes in another shameful humiliation as had been the case in 1918. So Hitler moved from the victorious phase down to the holdout phase, down to the absolutely no capitulation phase. And I think that, in a sense, sums up his mentality through the war. When you're researching him, do you ever think his decisions are just mad, that he's just completely lost it, or can you not see it in that sense? Well, as I was undertaking this book, one of the things that I wanted to look at was how the decisions I'm considering are nearly all decisions for war. So normally we think of war itself as going to war as something that's absolutely crazy and disastrous and so on. But what I was trying to look at was whether, given the parameters of their mentality, given the premises, whether there wasn't an inner rationality to these decisions. And in each case, I found that there was. So the decision to attack the Soviet Union, the decision to declare war on the USA, they have an internal rationality, even when we can look out for an outsider and say that was absolutely crazy to do that. And another point that comes across strongly in this, and not just in the German context, is how practically every one of these belligerent powers was fighting against time, so that the urgency of taking a decision was another one which applied across the board. But when we come back to it, there was a rationality. It's a rationality only once you've accepted the basic premises operating from. But in that sense, what we're looking at is the role of key individuals like Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Roosevelt, Churchill, and the Japanese leaders, Kanoi and Tojo, to take these vital decisions. But part of what I've been trying to do in the book is to show the role of the individual within a context and within within the forces that made that individual's operations and actions possible. Fascinating. And finally, on a wider note, and in conclusion, the Second World War is surely one of the most studied and written about episodes in history. Where do you see it going? What new developments in the subject do you predict in the next few years? What are the big research areas that we'll see coming to fruition? Intriguing question. I think the area where we most lack information, and where at some point I think there will be new breakthroughs, is in once the Soviet archives are properly opened up. And I think there's still some surprises to come from the Soviet Union, which really we can only guess about because we've never fully had access to Soviet archives. There have been windows of opportunity after the fall of the Berlin Wall and so on, but the windows are rapidly shut to again. And I had terrible trouble trying to get into, get access to Russian archives for this book. And I think it is very, very difficult to do that. But there are still, still things there, I think, which we will learn as soon as those that were, I say as soon as, whenever those archives become more accessible. I think that will happen in due course, but it might take a long time yet. And I think that's the area which will bring more research materials. Otherwise, I think we will have, as history, historical writing always shows, we'll have new perspectives on things. So 
I've tried in this book to bring a new perspective on decision making. Other people will bring new perspectives on other areas. I think the last phase of the war is another one where there's still a lot to be learned in those last months of the war on the part of all the different allies. And I think there's also some comparative work which will need to be done on the running of the war and on the behavior of civilian populations, particularly in that last phase. But I think in research terms, the biggest dividends are likely to arise from Soviet materials if we ever get access to them, which I think we will Great. Well, well, thanks very much, Professor Kershaw, for that insight into, into decision-making in the Second World War. Your new book, Fateful Choices, Ten Decisions That Changed the World, 1940-41, is published, I believe, on 7th of June by Penguin Allen Lane. And your feature, Hitler vs. America, which draws on the conclusions made from the book, is published in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale on the 29th of May. Thanks very much, Professor Kershaw. Nice talking to you, Dave.